welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Well, we'll get started. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Arana Ahmed, founder at Dark Cirrus AI. Arana, you're in Denver, are you not? Yes. Awesome. How's life in Denver today? Pretty good so far. It's supposed to get really hot. Apparently, we're breaking heat records every day, so not looking to the later half of the day. Yeah. No, actually, I've got quite a few friends and, you know, whether it's contacts for business or even school that live in downtown Denver and outside of Denver and Golden and speaking with them this week, they said it was just the extremely hot Similar to here in Houston, actually, we've been experiencing 100 degree weather, and which is and it's mm -hmm. in June and at the time of the recording here. And so it's interesting because ERCOT, our electricity grid, yep. you know, provider here is already telling us to reduce energy consumption, which is, you know, again, we just experienced this in February with stress to the grid. And here we are in June again, experiencing a lot of pressure with increased energy demand. And so Again, you know, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but you know, yeah. Den you know, and, and Denver too. So there's some extreme weather conditions just continuously coming. And I don't know about Denver, but here in Houston, we have had some serious thunderstorms over the last month, like thunder and lightning, like I have never seen in my entire life. And so, you know, again, some probably would say, well, that's climate change. And some might say, well, that's just weather patterns, you know, coming and going. But anyway, Nonetheless, yeah, it's good. been extreme. Have you guys experienced that too? So I can actually refer that to question to many different places that I've experienced over my career. And I would say yes. So for example, I'm originally from Pakistan. We have very hot summers as well. And the rain patterns have definitely switched quite a bit. So there were year of, years of drought in between. And then if you, you can actually Google that in 2010, we had this gigantic flooding event and it was essentially just just rain pouring down over two days that essentially just overwhelmed the entire system so that's a good example and then I mean living in Oklahoma I witnessed that actually last two years that I was there because it used to get really really hot and then just like you mentioned the thunderstorms that we would experience and one of the reasons I liked moving to Oklahoma was I could take really nice cloud pictures Ah, your name of your company is Dark Cirrus, like you said, the cloud. Is yeah. that so? What's your sort of infatuation with clouds? I'm interested. So that's exactly where the name came from. It's just so if you look at clouds, what's interesting about cloud formation is it's it's a very it seems like a very random process, and there are actually books written on it. And so the whole 
process of formation of clouds is something that fascinates me. And then on top of that, depending on, actually, not even depending on, if you just look at clouds at any given point, any day, yeah. there are just so many different patterns. Even if it's pitch dark and it's just completely cloudy, you'll still be able to find some interesting patterns in the clouds. And that just seems fascinating to me. You know, it sounds a little silly, but I can certainly identify. And ever since I was, I mean, when I was younger, so my mom who raised me, she worked for Canadian Airlines in Calgary, and she took me on several flights as a young child from basically the time I was born up until I graduated high school, we traveled a lot. But anyway, some of my earliest memories were like sitting in an airplane and looking at when you're above the clouds, looking down at the clouds. And it just like, it's this weird, magical, like world. It looks like, like there's just these peaks and valleys. And, and again, people are going to laugh, but I used to watch Care Bears growing up (laughs) and they, they play and do all their stuff in the clouds. So I certainly have kind of a unique uh, appreciation for clouds as well. And, you know, it's one thing if you're, you have to say in a field or something, it's a beautiful sunny day and you look Mm -hmm. and you just look up and, you know, I remember being younger, me and my friends, I mean, gosh, I don't know how young we were, but we would say, oh, do you see this animal? And do you see this yeah. shape? And you yeah. kind of, and now with my kids, I do the same thing. we look in the clouds and say, oh, what do you see in the clouds? And it is really neat. So <laughs> yeah. it's funny. I haven't had a conversation about clouds in a long time, but I'm glad yeah. you brought it up. <laughs> no, it's, so something on that line, basically something that combines both oil field and clouds. I was working at this location way back, I think 2009, almost 12 years ago. And it was, so we were testing the well and there was a thermometer outside just recording the atmospheric temperature. And I think it recorded 54 degrees Celsius. I, I don't know how much that is. Oh, wow. in, in That's probably 120 that, that or Probably. It was in direct sunlight. So there's some of that effect. But so middle of Pakistan, very hot day. And then I look up and there are these two tiny clouds in the middle of the desert. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And I actually still have a picture of those clouds. So I came across that. A few weeks ago, I was just going through random stuff. Like, oh, I almost forgot that there's there was hope even at that point in time. No kidding. So, I bet yeah. it brought back some cool memories. Mm-hmm. No kidding. Yeah, so pretty interesting. So I'm interested, Rana. You're from Pakistan. What was it like growing up there? I mean, what did you? What was you know? What were you like growing up? What were you interested in? I mean, tell us a little bit about that. So. Basically, how you know how people identify with different decades that they grew up in. So I grew up in 90s and I really look back at everything really fondly. And the fact is that I would say by Pakistani standards, I was actually very lucky. I was raised in a upper middle class household. So I was able to get good education that basically allowed me to go to college actually debt free. So those times looking back again at 90s a lot of things were very good because you didn't have as much traffic back then and there were a lot of open spaces and things turned very rapidly after 2000s basically pretty much everything after 2001 changed dramatically but still there are elements of that 90s era that I look back at very fondly that you still experience when you go back home so there's quite a bit of Pakistan, old Pakistan, still there. You just have to go explore it and find it a little in different places. 
I understand. So growing up, you said you were fortunate enough to get an education. You came out of it debt-free. And so I get, you know, that's a huge testament to your parents, I'm sure. But, you know, was there a lot of pressure on you to pursue a career path or a path of education that you weren't necessarily, I guess, for, but you knew because your parents maybe said, hey, you know, this is the path or this, you know, commonly, this is the direction we need to go. I mean, can you touch on that? Because I've heard... And I say that through my own experience growing up in Calgary, I grew up, you know, and and went to college with folks from Pakistan. I worked with a gentleman from Pakistan, India, and several other parts throughout the Middle East. And, you know, that one thing that they kind of laugh about is they say, oh, you know, my parents wanted me to do this, or they wanted me to do that. But I decided to kind of, you know, go against the grain. Was that something you experienced or were you, did you have the freedom to pursue whatever it was you wanted to? No, I had more freedom, I would say, than most of the people. So one of the things that my father always emphasized on the fact was just pick whatever you want to do, but be very good at it. So for me, I guess it was easy because, yeah, most of the people that intend, actually even now, they want to be engineers or doctors, basically go into those kind of fields. And I really wanted to be an engineer because I, well, I never made anything, but I broke a lot of things around home, just trying to figure out how they worked. <laughs> so, hey, that's how you learn is through breaking things, right? <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I ended up, so for me, I was really lucky because I wanted to be an engineer. I ended up in a good engineering college. One thing that happened by chance was because initially I was trying to get into mechanical engineering or industrial engineering type specialization, but I took this one class. So my very first proper class in the college was introduction to drilling and basically a petroleum engineering class. And after I took that, the biggest thing that attracted me towards that career was the fact that our professor, the first thing he said, yeah, you get to work outside on rigs and in these locations that can be anywhere in the world. So I thought, oh, that sounds interesting because you're basically being sent out there. And also you could, it could be a helicopter, you could be driving for a day or so, or it, it, it could be any of those things, right? But you're yeah. taking a path that very few other people take. And then you end up on a rig, which is a self-sustained city in a sense, and just drill for oil. So that to me was very fascinating that this might be a fun thing to do. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that. And I definitely want to go down that path, but I'm interested. I just want to switch gears a little bit because I think there's a topic that I know that you're extremely, I would say probably an expert in, but with all the hype and momentum behind things like AI machine learning. How are you innovating around that this year? So I agree with you. There is a lot of hype. And honestly, just looking at the field, I would say, I don't think anyone's an expert. The field has exploded so quickly. And there are so many, every day there are research papers coming out about different architectures, different way of approaching and solving problems. So what we are doing, or at least where we started from was the very basic ones. If you look at the progression of AI since 2012, when basically neural networks became cool again, the first thing that everyone solved was computer vision and there were competitions. And interestingly, with computer vision, the state of art has come so far that it can actually beat humans in some tasks. Although there are some glaring mistakes, I can share those with you, which are very interesting as well. Mm -hmm. In fact, there might be People can look at that, up, but on my GitHub, I actually have this object detection sheet that I just posted there. 
and it's one of Google's models. And I uploaded a picture of my dog, and from a certain angle, it mistook him as a wolf or something. So it, there oh, are really? some interesting. Yeah, you, you could do very interesting experiments with that if someone wants to. Yeah, that, that's cool. So what we started as, or the first thing that we looked at was computer vision for specifically in this case for belgrading a drill bit. And the reason I picked that was there are decent data sets that have been collected by different organizations. So I was lucky enough to work with two operators and collect not a very big data set, but just a decent enough data set. And then applying those algorithms was relatively straightforward and Creating an entire system out of that just took a little bit of effort. But the idea was, let's take these existing techniques, take a unique data set that no one has looked at before and see how the technology performs and can it can, and is it possible to actually convert that into product that people can get benefit from? No kidding. So that was the first step, but now we are actually moving, developing a few other things in parallel, which are mostly related to looking at real-time data to essentially predict if some piece of equipment might fail in the near future. So basically trying to warn users, hey, if you keep pushing that or if you drill through this zone at, by operating under certain conditions, you might actually wreck or there's a high probability that you might do some serious damage. So that's the next step that we are working towards. Well, I think predictive analysis is extremely important because if you can extend the life of a drill bit or a tool or, you know, not even in the drilling space, but whether it's an automobile or just anything that has moving parts, you know, fatigue and stress ultimately causes things to break down. So if you can, again, like you can, you know, somewhat predict the outcome and extend it and especially like, you know, bringing it back to drilling. I mean, I've been in drilling my entire career starting in 2004 and I mean, the most painful thing to a drilling engineer is being, you know, five or 600 feet from TD and all of a sudden the motor fails or the bit, you know, they just, their RP drops off and they can't, you know, whatever, they can't get to TD and then they got to make a 70, 80, 100, $150,000 trip, maybe more. I mean, I'm sure someone will critique my numbers there, but it's a significant impact to have to make a trip because either they're you know, rotating too fast or had too much weight on bit, not enough, whatever the case may be that I could see over the long run, saving the drilling industry, a ton of money. And that doesn't even apply to bits, whether that could be pumps, it could be, you know, shoot your top drive, like any, anything that moves, essentially, if, if you have any bit of downtime, because something breaks down, if you can prevent it or no on a trip, okay, hey, we know that in about you know, 26 hours, this thing is going to break, or we're going to have to replace this and that, whatever, then you can start doing some better planning, get more efficient. And so that part of it is very important. And certainly something that's, at least from what I've heard, and then now talking to you, that's, that's evolving quite nicely. Is it common right now? Or is just a lot of like, sort of conceptual type ideas that really haven't hit the market yet? Oh, you mean for us or in general? Just in general. There are some systems out there. The, the problem is, which makes drilling very interesting, is there are just too many variables to deal with. So yeah. the geology is complicated. And if you look at some of the tougher basins to drill around the world, actually 
I can give you a specific example. For example, Oklahoma, if you're trying to drill Woodford, there are just depending on how deep you go, or if you're just off your target by a few feet, you could either end up in a bed of chert and just wreck everything, or it could be smooth sailing and you're setting a record. And there are very, very minor differences that basically change the trajectory of how things are going to perform. And that's why these systems are quite sensitive or sometimes, or basically they're the reliability is not very high in, in most cases, but that's evolving very rapidly. And that's where another interesting aspect of the whole research comes in, because now with some of the new technologies that are coming online, you just get so much data. The problem is, yes, having data is good, but human mind is not capable of thinking beyond, actually, in most cases, three dimensions, let alone four or higher dimensions. No and now you're, you have all of this data streaming at you at, in some cases, sub one second rate. And it's very hard for humans to basically ingest that and make decisions fast enough to avoid these kind of circumstances. So what happened, and that's where these systems come in place. So with basically AI-based, or actually not even AI-based, just rule-based systems, you could process that data much faster. As a result, a user, when they're looking at a screen, they're not looking at the entire calculations going on in the background. They're just looking at one or two matrix that help them make those decisions very quickly. And that's, I think, where everything is evolving or moving to. Wow. And so with that said, I mean... Where do you see, well, let's actually, I'm curious more to tie it back to your, I guess, what you're focused on is is drill bit grading. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So where's the value in that? So talk a little bit about through, you know, kind of the, the scope of work that you guys provide and, you know, why there's value there versus just the old school, take a picture, company representative on site, grades it up, whatever. Yeah. And then they log it and away you go. I mean, why is it important to apply some technology to that aspect? So two things. Number one is consistency. I actually dealt with a case last week. Someone sent me a picture and it was graded quite severely. The bit was graded quite severely. And I don't know exactly what their logic was, but there were just two cutters that had actually failed completely, but the grade was still not justified. So what we see is that if you can consistently get the same kind of data, regardless of what someone's experience is, that really helps accelerate the progress of product development on the bit side, but it also helps drilling engineers make better decisions. Because So on top of this, basically, yes, we are collecting pictures and taking their data, but the, the goal is for a field, we want to build that picture as quickly as possible. So if you've drilled four wells or three wells in a field, we want to look at those images, bit images, and basically draw conclusions. Like, are you really pushing or are you being too conservative? Are you pushing your system or are you getting the maximum benefit out of the system? But all of that needs to be built on solid, consistent data. So that's the first step. And that's why we are, starting off with that application because the idea is if we can set up a system where someone knows exact basically someone is guided by the app itself to take the right pictures and upload them then you can consistently grade that bit one bit after another and keep doing that but what happens 
after that is the second part of this is once you have all of this data coming in from different parts of, let's say, just one field, it becomes possible to start predicting trends in the field. So the thing that I mentioned before, that if you're in one part of the field or just in one zone, something catastrophic might happen. And the idea is if we are collecting consistent data from all different parts of the field, it basically you're almost creating a mapping for how or what you could expect in different areas when you're drilling. And that basically, in, in especially in planning part, helps a lot because you can preemptively plan for some contingencies or even avoid some some problems that might arise. Mm. Yeah, that's, and again, I could just totally see, I mean, is this, have you been able to kind of grow it at scale or, is, or are you still working with a select few companies? Because you've only been in business for about a year, right? Yes. And we actually only went live a month ago, month oh, and a half wow. ago. Yeah. When I say live, our idea was we've done internal testing. We've created something that seems to work at least on our data set, right? But yeah. the problem with any kind of product development is if you, the first time it would come across some customers, you would break that thing necessarily. So we basically launched as a beta version, which anyone can go and use. And the idea is we want to learn as quickly as possible how people interact with the app, how they take pictures and what can we control, what can we improve or, and also identify our blind spots. Cause like I said, the data set that initially we had was not a huge data set. And that's actually one of the questions that we got asked repeatedly, that, oh, how many bits, bit pictures do you have? Which I think matters, but not as much as people think. But I also would admit that there are blind spots necessarily cause we simply don't have the data. So. Something interesting happened as soon as we deployed, we basically started picking up on those bugs and those blind spots very, very quickly. So the system has evolved already. We've actually updated our different models at least three or four times. And this is purely based on feedback that's coming from the field. Yeah. Like just over a week ago, we had this very interesting incident. So one of the models looks at different components of the bits and tries to identify that. And the data that came in, the confidence was extremely low. So it was just all over the place, just oh, no. confused about what's happening. And something that I've always wanted to do, I got a chance to do that was reinforcement learning type setup, which okay. we can go into more detail if you want. But yeah, so it's created this simple architecture on top of that existing model. And all it does now is make sure when those kind of pictures come in, it tries to scan those and tries to find the one with where it's most confident and then basically gives you results on those. But these are the kind of things that you gain experience on once the product is launched. So to coming back to the main question, we are in beta launch stage, testing more and more pictures every day making sure the system works. We still have a backlog of a few things that need to be worked on, but I'm quite confident that we will make it very, very robust very quickly. Wow. That sounds like it. And so is that, can you explain what, it was a term you'd use. Reinforcement I, learning? Yeah. Reinfor is that similar mm -hmm. to deep learning or are those two kind of independent concepts? So deep learning is a broader term. Most of the AI stuff that you would hear 
relates to deep learning. And most of the deep learning was done by an architecture that's broadly defined as neural networks. Reinforcement learning is a subfield, but it's, sol- but it's also slightly different than most of the other deep learning applications. So what was happening or what's the current state? And it's evol- like I said, it's evolving rapidly as we speak. So most of your computer vision applications are done by architecture that's defined as a convolutional neural network. And essentially you take a picture and the simplest way of explaining it, pass it through different filter and then identify features and basically say, oh, if I throw this picture in based on the features that this network has identified, this is the object most likely. So that's your computer vision. Then the natural language processing, which is chatbots and all of that stuff, actually it's a lot broader than that. That has started using over the past three years, a very different architecture, which is the transformer architecture. Again, if someone wants to do some research, I would highly recommend Googling GPT-3. Okay. So there's a company called OpenAI that released a GPT-3 and it's just fascinating. You, you can see some of the applications that it has created and it's capable of writing poems. It's capable of giving coherent answers in some cases, depending on how the application is set. And in fact, if there's a game out there, there's basically a platform called Latitude.io and they have a game that you can actually play and that's based on GPT-3. So you give it some prompts or you want to create a story, you type something and it will give you an answer and you can keep playing it that way. Really? So that's natural language processing. But then there are other areas. One of them is reinforcement learning. And again, I would highly recommend people to go and Google AlphaGo. So this is a system that actually beat the world champion in Go in five, four to one. So the world champion did win one. But AlphaGo is based on reinforcement learning. And the idea is you're not telling the system explicitly if the picture that you're showing it is a cat or a dog. Instead, what you're saying is, hey, there's this target that you need to achieve. And these are the constraints. So go figure it out. And these are the kind of systems that are being used in different challenges, such as self-driving to an extent. Okay, yeah. The very first DARPA challenge for self-driving was actually based on a reinforcement learning type system. So you basically tell the system, given these constraints, this is what you want. This is your reward. And these are, or this is your punishment if you do something wrong. And it's an overly simplistic explanation, but that's what you're trying to do. And over time, what happens is the system figures out and it creates its own, basically its own map for doing different things or responding to different situations. Going back to that example of AlphaGo, since the that championship, I think it happened back in 2016, they actually created a system that plays against itself. And what they found out was that system became smarter than even AlphaGo with just three days of gameplay. So imagine what the computer is doing. It's basically playing millions of games against itself at very, very fast pace. So it's becoming smarter very, very quickly. And that's reinforcement learning. Wow. That's fascinating. So what does the future look like for you at Dark Sirius with regards to, you know, this rapid evolvement in technology, deep learning, reinforcement learning? I mean, obviously you're starting at a very niche 
sort of category? I mean, what do you plan, like say in five years? I mean, where, where do you see this evolving to? So we want to be a dedicated AI solutions company. And where we see this evolving is now that we've proved at least one concept and we know that we have the capability to build an AI system, we basically want to expand into other categories, specifically two things that I think will always stay fundamental to us. And especially for industrial applications, we think NLP or natural language processing has its value, but maybe not what we are trying to do. So computer vision and real-time analytics, those are two fundamentals that we want to build on. So we want to create systems that look at streaming data and help users make predictions or make decisions faster. And that's the core objective that we want to get at. Yeah, no, and it sounds like you're well on your way. But I have to ask, you know, in the middle of 2020, I mean, things are going crazy. Obviously, the future of oil and gas was pretty bleak. What made you decide to take a leap of faith and and start a company like this, kind of, you know, amidst all the chaos? So chance, basically, I did lose my job in 2020, and I probably would never have taken this chance. I was thinking about the whole thing for a while. I had discussions with people, and they were always interested in these kind of technologies. So at that point in time, two things came to my mind, which is, you know what, I'm at a point in my life where I can take this risk and see how it evolves. And the second thing was, despite all the doom and gloom and people predicting, yeah, oil field is done. I don't have a very long career, but I've already been through three downturns. So I joined the industry in 2008, basically right after the first downturn. Things were just beginning to turn around. Actually, that was in the midst of that downturn. Yeah. And then the 2015 crash, 2014-15 crash, and then again, the 2020 crash. So one thing was certain that we are not going to switch to alternate forms of energy that quickly. Things, despite what's being predicted, things would go back to some sort of normality and it might take a while, but it would. So yeah, there are only 100 rigs in US, but they'll climb back up. And the idea was, okay, build something right now. And when things come back, these kind of systems bring value because now operators or users would realize, you know what, we don't need to go back to working the old way. We can actually use these new technologies and be much more efficient. So that was the thinking. All right. So I have the capability to take this risk. Why not take a chance, build something and in the process also help the industry, which frankly has helped me a lot. I bet. In what ways? So when I started my oil field career, like I mentioned before, the thing that attracted me to oil field in the first place was the ability to work in different places. So when I started my career, especially actually, I did work for a small oil field company in Pakistan before I started with NOV, but I made a decision or basically set a goal for myself that I want to work in three to four different places before I turn 30. And I don't think there are many industries besides oil field that actually would let you do that. So I started in Pakistan, went to Aberdeen for six month training. So worked there for a while, worked on some of their projects, oh. and then came back, worked again in Pakistan and then went to Saudi Arabia. So 
that was my third country within three years, actually, of starting at NOV. No kidding. And then I came to US and US is just completely different when it comes to some of the oil field habits and how things are done. Okay. Stayed in Houston. Like, do you have any examples? A lot, actually. So one of the first things that you experience is the difference between how sales are done over here versus in most of the other places I've worked at. Some of the things are common. Yeah, there are people who take in breakfast or take customers to lunch. That, that doesn't change anywhere. But in terms of technical capabilities, salespeople in US generally are pure salespeople. And I think that is important. I'm not saying that you should have technical salespeople because technical people do get, tend to get stuck in their own technical expertise. Just the way things are done in US, you actually need that guy who is not very technical, but who can pretty much start a conversation on any, any topic. Whereas in Saudi Arabia, for example, you had people who were quite technical. Most of them were either engineers or geologists that had worked as an MWD or something before becoming a salesperson. So that's a major difference that you notice right on as soon as you start working in U.S. versus anywhere else. Yeah, we do have quite a bit of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually in, in Canada, too, I noticed because you know started my career in Canada and coming down here. And even in Denver, I noticed more so than a lot of places is they would fill the streets with oil field sales representatives who had no oil field experience. And it always boggled my mind. Like, how do you sell something if you've never seen it or been a part of it? Or, I mean, it's one thing to maybe go to a rig once or twice, but I don't understand. Like I spent years on a drilling rig and I still sometimes think that wasn't enough. You know, went to school, did engineering and Yeah, I just, and again, like you said, there's certainly value in people going into an office and starting a conversation and entertaining and, you know, they're very influential in in how, you know, the sort of the business cycle evolves. And so again, nothing against them. I mean, I'm in sales now. And so people sometimes probably think like, I don't even know what you do on a daily basis. It seems like all you're doing is going from office to office and, you know, just chatting it up with folks and, you know, but you know, when it comes time to providing a solution, mm-hmm. it just, to me, if I was buying something, I wouldn't want to have to deal with someone to go for lunch, but then deal with someone else to get a solution. Yep. I would want to do it all at once. Yep. So it's kind of interesting. So I, I can identify with that. Yeah. I would say in defense of salespeople, again, and my, my views probably were actually quite different. If you had asked me the same question two years ago, three years ago, especially before my Oklahoma experience. Yeah. But Having done some of that as a technical or from a technical sales point of view, and also not trying to talk to people and trying to basically build and get some momentum behind this app, sales is hard. It's, oh, yeah. it's, we're just, as human beings, we are wired to not deal with rejection very well. And that's going to happen on a daily basis if you're trying to sell anyone. I mean, for me, I, Going through this process, it actually can get very, very depressing. And that's what I have started to appreciate about salespeople because they are doing this day in and day out. I've one of the sales people I respect very much actually so is my friend Vayman in Oklahoma. And he's the one who I've worked with to open a major account or access a major account in Oklahoma. And I have to appreciate how persistent he was. So for the first six months <laughs> yeah. when we walked in, everyone liked him. So that was good. People would talk to him. But 
there were some Telugu teachers who were kind of hostile. Well, not hostile, but they basically just were too busy. And he, day after day, week after week, just kept going in, just kept chatting them up. And eventually, so I would go with him to provide any technical assistance that he needed. And eventually, it took us almost six months before we started gaining some momentum. We had a good product, went in there, kept knocking at the doors. Eventually, we managed to open a major account. But the fact is that. Yeah, people think that the job is easy. It's not easy. It's no. actually it's, it's a very frustrating and can be frankly quite depressing. It is. So again, I started my sales career in Denver and then have been in Houston now for I think eight years doing sales. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times people think you go in and you shake hands and and all of a sudden you have a deal. But I can also appreciate the persistence, dedication, and I know for one of the major accounts that I was able to basically open up and, and bring the business into our organization. I started calling on them in 2013 and it wasn't until 2017 mm-hmm. when we actually like transacted on business. And so that's a long sales cycle. And yeah. so I, yeah, again, nothing against salesmen. I have the utmost appreciation for like good salespeople, but yeah, just their tenacity and persistence and ability to just like shrug it off when someone tells them no, and they yeah. just keep trying and trying and trying. And it's almost like they're wired to, but there's an art to it. And again, there's extreme value in it, I think. And so would you say that if, you know, if, the, if, if other cultures, business cultures outside of the US were to adopt that, would that be a benefit? Or do you think it would be something that people would look down on? I mean, do you see this kind of style working in other areas or no? So that's actually a very good question because there are a lot of cultural differences. I remember one of my early mentors in the field. So in Saudi Arabia, we were basically visiting Weatherford and the VP, I think he was VP of drilling at that point, whatever. Anyway, so that we started talking to him and he said, you know, what's interesting about the Saudi culture, for example, is these are the nicest people. And then he followed that up and said, yeah, but you'll never get their business. So he said, I walk in and I meet these senior Aramco managers and VPs and they're the nicest people. They, you'll walk in, they'll offer you tea and they'll basically be willing to, or actually they'll even pay your food bill and everything. And they'll ask about your family. They'll ask about everything. And then they'll basically politely walk you out the door and then you realize, oh, we haven't done any business with them. So. <laughs> Wow. Culturally, things are different and you have to, you realize that very, very quickly uh, once you start dealing with different cultures. And I think tenacity works everywhere overall. Yeah. But you just have to approach it differently. So if you're dealing with people in Middle East, persistence would pay off, but you can't think the same way that, oh, if I just show up every day at this guy's office with giveaways or just take him to lunch that I'll win over his business. They probably won't respond very well to that, but they might actually respond very well to you provide, especially some of the engineers that I dealt with providing them with technical data that gives them an edge that makes them look smarter in their daily meetings when they have their senior management. That's the kind of thing that they really appreciate it. Well, and in, to supplement that, I think that that sort of methodology or at least approach is more so now here in the US than maybe it was and and really just by way of the market conditions because 
everyone because there's, there's less rigs out there there's just as many salesmen running around and so what i've noticed over the years is you used to be able to again kind of do the typical entertaining mm-hmm. you know go to games this and that and then win over somebody's work but now everyone's fighting for a job and so if salesmen can add value and make those engineers look better those engineers in turn are going to depend on those salesmen for the performance of their job. So if they lose that critical individual, then therefore their job performance might suffer. So that's one thing that I would advise to young salesmen is be of value and create a sense of dependency so that those engineers or whether it's engineers or project managers or whoever depend on you and know that without you, they can't do their job as well. That's where I think the holy grail is. Yep. And also, I would add on top of that, you have to be patient in some of these things. As some of my best friends or people that I still reach out to me even many years after I've worked with them are the ones where we had a difficult project and basically we stuck it through to make that project a success. This We had an optimization project with Saudi Aramco and the superintendent that was, well, then back then drilling advisor, but later he became superintendent. He said to me once back then, when it seemed like the entire project was failing and pretty much everyone was criticizing us, that I really appreciate the fact that you're sticking to the project and trying to get it through. And I'm still friends with that drilling engineer to this day, even though he has, I've left Saudi Arabia, he's left Saudi Aramco, and we are both in different parts of the world, but we still regularly uh, communicate. And he, if he has a problem, he comes and asks about that. So it's all about long-term. You you don't have, you can't think about things in terms of just, oh, can I get this done next week and basically have my bonus or whatever you're chasing after. Yeah, no, it's, it's, you're exactly right. Being patient and understanding you're in it for the long run. Cause a lot of the little things that, you know, I know for me in my career, cause I'm in sales, I'm not expecting immediate return on investment. I think of it long-term because a lot of the folks I'm dealing with right now are my age, maybe even younger. I want their business for life. And while I may not get their business now or in the next five years, cause I've been calling on certain individuals and, you know, have built really strong relationships with people who have never used me for their yeah. business, but they'll call me or ask questions just to, as an unbiased opinion. And I know in the long run, when they do get to a position to make decisions that won't get questioned, I know the business will be there. And so it's like you said, you got to be patient and understand that everyone has a boss and the objectives of their boss may differ from theirs and you have to respect it. And so I think, and again, we took a kind of a turn here and started talking about sales, but with you in a startup business, I think this all really directly applies to you. Oh, it does big time, especially when you're as small as we are. I don't have the luxury to offshore or basically hire someone to do the sales full time, at least not right now. Yeah. So you have to do a lot of stuff yourself and which is actually great on some aspects because I got to learn so much. I mean, I ran my own marketing campaign and learned about so many things that I never would have even thought about. Yeah. But there are times when nothing seems to be working. So you've sent five emails or five messages and not a single person has replied. And those are the days when you really need a dog. So basically you need to go on a walk, 
clear your mind and just get that reset, come back and start working again. But things evolve slowly. So one such incident was I sent an email to this one of the guys I was talking to a while back and actually didn't get a reply for almost a month. I'm like, this just sucks. I guess that guy doesn't want to talk to me anymore. <laughs> right. And then all of a sudden, a month later, he replied and he basically apologized because he was not feeling well. So, and he had actually taken extensive time off. So, like, mm. you know what? That There are following up on that immediately after that happened, I actually reached out to some of the other people that I had heard back from. And turns out most of them replied. It was just bad timing on that particular or on my part that they were busy or they were distracted and or somehow they missed that but people generally are not bad it's just that there's so much going on in everyone's life so you have to basically follow that sales rule all right just keep politely tapping at the doors and some of them would come back and reply to you or give you the feedback that you're looking for yeah no that's true and and i think these are some great certainly some great words of advice. And while it has nothing really specifically to do with AI and, you know, bit grading, I think it's just important for people, especially now in the conditions that we're at with oil and gas, just some really good key takeaways there. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface, but with the interest of time, you know, unfortunately I have, you know, a hard deadline here, a time deadline here that I have to hit, but Rana, this has been a very fascinating and, and I really look forward to where you guys are going the growth you've seen over the last you know month basically yeah but where or if people are more interested in learning about what you do at dark Sirius, what's the best way to reach out to you so two ways actually to reach out to me the easiest way is just go on linkedin and so search for rana Demur Ahmed, and you or actually search for dark Sirius ai and i'm one of the employees over there so okay <laughs> That's, that's the easiest way to reach me. And if you want to get some more information about what Dark Series AI is doing, darkseriesai.com mm-hmm. is our website. You can actually go and get access to the app through that website as well. Okay. Some of the other projects that we're working on are listed over there. That needs to be updated a little bit because we've, just like any startup, we've made a few pivots and decisions. Oh, I'm sure. We have, do not reflect on our website, but that's other way to reach us and see what we're doing. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure and put the link in the show notes. And before we log off here, I do want to take a moment to tell everyone about some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the WellPad operations. Technip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full frack automation. To discover more about all the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. Well, again, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. Do you have any closing last words or any food for thought for the audience? Closing last words. No, I would basically just say, especially given the situation in oil field right now, I would say yeah, things are actually things are looking good. But yeah, <laughs> over the long term, especially for the young engineers or even people about my age, it's very important to start diversifying. Basically, look around you identify things that are manual or that can be rapidly automated and then try and see if you can improve those processes because that experience would come in handy mm. even outside oil field. that just 
So I think personally, you should always be just striving to make your own job redundant. And the only way to do that is identify the inefficiencies and just constantly improving that. That's pretty much what I've tried to do. Yeah, no, I think that's that's huge. And I think a lot of companies are striving to get there and mm-hmm. just don't often necessarily have the right roadmap on how to do that. But if yeah. everyone's thinking and those thoughts align with one another, technology such as yours and other ones that are being deployed in the industry are going to certainly help everyone's jobs and hopefully, I mean, ultimately lower the cost to do business and mm-hmm. increase profitability. I mean, that's what it's all about, especially nowadays. Yep. investors are not too keen on oil and gas. And so anything we can do to be more efficient and increase, you know, our, our profits and, you know, that's what it's all about. So yep. anyways, with that said, everyone always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks everybody. Hey everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN and here are the events on deck for July, 2021. This month we have five events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're always interested in staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting our monthly happy hour at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on July 29th. Our June happy hour was a hit, so if you weren't there for the June one, we hope to see you there this month at our July happy hour. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. Don't forget that it's on July 29th. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events. The first one being the Doug Permian and Eagle Ford Conference at the Fort Worth Convention Center from July 12th to July 14th. And the next in-person event is the SPE International Data Science Convention at the Norris Convention Center in Houston, Texas on July 8th. Next, we have our two online events. The first being a Cognite webinar titled from buzzwords to boardrooms, what energy leaders really think about the transition towards true sustainability. And that's on July 8th from 11.30 to 12.30. And lastly, we have the US Africa Energy Forum, which is online on July 12th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for July. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.